Hello and welcome to A Novel Process, the podcast about what it's really like to write a book. My name is May Jasper. Okay, gang, this is episode 11 of the podcast where I am writing a novel and every fortnight I make an episode to tell you guys how it's going. And this is also part five, embarrassingly, but there we are, of our checkpoint episodes, where I'm in the process of laying out the whole narrative for the book as it stands right now, warts and all. And today is, I promise, the last checkpoint episode. But before we get started, we ended the previous episode at quite a crucial narrative juncture, so I just want to recap exactly where we are. When we left off, Jenny and Yeza were in police custody, and Danica was sitting in an alley outside their jail cell holding a Gaelic communicator. The three of them were having a telepathic conversation with the rest of the Gaelic, who were in their Gaelic cave, trying to decide what to do about two important issues. The first issue is Yeza, who has been captured and who is being held in an air-conditioned jail cell. It's very cold. He says that there is an upgrade on his shiver armour, which is running out. It's keeping him warm, but is going to be gone soon. And basically, if he isn't released, in a matter of hours, he will die. Second issue, William's brain. Yeah, the final donated brain, which is currently locked in the hospital morgue. Unless our heroes do something to retrieve his brain, it's not going to be released by the human authorities before the Georg's deadline to get home. And even if the brain were to be released, there's a further problem because William killed himself and is therefore broken Georg rules, and the colony might still not accept the brain for donation under those circumstances. Last episode, William made an impassioned plea for them to break this rule, but we, the audience, don't know how that went over with the rest of the Georg as yet. Also, unbeknownst to our heroes, their antagonists, Shirley, her husband Hugh, Oscar, the creepy dude from MBZ Corp, and the police have all joined forces, and Oscar mentioned something about a mysterious way to neutralise Georg technology. The final little bit of housekeeping I want to do before we get back into the episode is to just clarify some Melunda Bay geography. I've talked a lot about the main street of town in Melunda Bay. I've actually named the street now. It's called Kerrang Street. This is the one that the town hall is on. The police station is around the corner. And Kerrang Street stretches along the coast. Down in front of the town hall, there is uh, quite sort of basically sea level, quite low down. But if you follow the street east, it climbs up a hill as some cliffs emerge between the town and the sea. Once you get to the top of that hill, on the right-hand side is a park along the edge of the cliff. And then over the road from the park, the top of the hill, that's where the hospital is. Okay, We've described the hospital before, but just to recap, it's a long two-story building. There is a main entrance at one end, that's the end closest to town, and there's a car park out the front. Uh, And then there is a side entrance around the back, which is where Danica and Jenny broke into the hospital last episode. Okay, I think that's all the context we need to make this work. I mean, it's not, obviously, there's a whole book that happened already, but if anything I've just said makes no sense to you, you're starting in the wrong place. You need to go back (laughs) to episode seven. But for the rest of us, let's get going. So we come back to Danica 
still in the back alley. When she first sat down out there, it was about 8 a.m. It's now 11.30 a.m. She stands up, stretches, and then picks up the IKEA lamp box with the Gale communicator in it and walks back to her car. With the box in the front seat, she drives east along Kerrang Street, and as she passes the hospital, she slows down, peering out her side window. She can see two police officers posted outside the main entrance, and she can also see Hugh, with another big bloke all in camo, standing in the car park, smoking. Other than that, there's not a lot of people around. The car park is mostly empty. There's like one car, a ute, a white tradie van, you know, that kind of thing, but there's, there's really not much about. So Danica keeps driving. She goes around the corner and into a little sandwich shop, comes out with a chicken salad sandwich and a can of Coke, gets back in the car, drives back to a point about 50 metres downhill from the hospital. And she grabs her lunch and her IKEA lamp box and takes a seat under a tree in the clifftop park facing towards the hospital. Half an hour after all of that, and it's now high noon. The temperature has only increased since this morning. Now it's 40 degrees in the shade and windy. It's the kind of day where you know something somewhere is going to catch fire. But inside the drunk tank, the aircon is still going full blast. For the last few hours, Yiza hasn't moved, and he's now stopped communicating with Jenny at all. Jenny's been sitting for the last little while with a hand on Yeezer's head, just kind of stroking his nose. But now she gets up and walks to the other side of the cell, stretching. Then she hears a noise behind her. She turns around just in time to see Yeezer's mouth open and a stream of vomit come out in a rush. Jenny calls out to the front desk for help, and a police officer that we haven't seen before comes in to check it out. Let's call him Officer Driscoll. He walks to the drunk tank door and says, Jesus, what happened? I don't know, says Jenny. He he just threw up. I think he's unconscious. Meanwhile, outside the station, the reporters and protesters hear a strange scuttling noise coming from down the street. They turn and see, almost incandescent in the bright sunlight, a group of 20 or so purple and fluoro-green gaelk running incredibly quickly down the road towards them. The reporters and protesters scream and scatter as the aliens charge past them and into the police station. Back at the drunk tank, Officer Driscoll opens the door and steps inside to see what's wrong with the user. At that moment, the wave of Georg pour in through the station's automated doors. They move past the reception desk and spread out through the station. The two we've met before, Tafali and Koble, race through the corridors and zip past Officer Driscoll and into the drunk tank. Tafali curls her body around Officer Driscoll's ankles and trips him. Once he's down, she climbs on top of him and pins him to the ground. Once he's secured, a third Georg figure enters the room. It's not a Georg itself, but a Georg device, which is moving independently and just as quickly as its controllers. The device is big. It's about five foot long and a foot wide, and looks like a giant centipede crossed with a slug. It moves along low to the ground on a huge number of tiny legs, but on top, instead of a hard carapace, is a mass of smooth, pillowy, slug-like tissue. Koble, 
who enters the room with Tefali, uh, he climbs up on top of the bench and tips, uses unconscious body off the bench and onto the sluggerpeed. The minute his body hits the pillowy slug stuff on top, it sinks down. And then around the edges of his body, slug-like tissue rises up and curls over the top of him, pulling him down into the device and absorbing him completely. The device begins to glow. While this is happening, Jenny notices that Tefali and Kobol and all the rest of the gay orc are wearing some kind of armour, but she can see that it's not like the usual shiver armour. It's beige instead of pink, and instead of a kind of fluttering, continuous movement of user's armour, this armour is made up of one long, unmoving piece. Uh, quite a thin piece, a pronounced ridge along their back, which covers the whole of the bioluminescent line on this spine. To either side of this spine ridge are some roughly circular flat plates, about 15 centimetres in diameter. And there's only, say, three of them each side, but they're spinning and moving independently along each gale's back and the plates are curving around as they travel to match the curves of the Georg's body. So, now that user is safe inside the slugapede, Jenny leans down to speak to Officer Driscoll. Oh, get it off me! Get it off me! He yells. Where's the key? says Jenny. The key to what? The key to the morgue drawer in the hospital with the brain in it. It's in evidence? Third door on the right. Jenny runs out of the drunk tank and goes and finds the key. Kobol and the Sluggerpede both follow her, and then Tefali is the last to leave. She slivers off Officer Driscoll and out the door, pulling it shut behind her with her tail. As she goes, he manages to reach for his gun and fires off a shot, which hits her in the flank, but just before it makes impact, one of the spinning plates on her armour zaps into position and deflects it. As Jenny is running through the police station corridors, she sees that there's no one around. No other officers. The place is totally empty. How many cops did Danica say were at the hospital? She asks. She could only see two, replies Tefali, who has now joined her uh, in the evidence room. There must be more somewhere, says Jenny as she rifles through the drawers. Uh, okay, found it. She holds up a small key and then turns to look at Tefali. Thank you for doing this. I know it's against your rules, she says. Isa is right. A friend of the Georg should not be left behind, says Tavali. Now, climb on. Climb on? Really? Says Jenny as she takes a step towards the green Georg. No, no, not me, says Tavali. And Jenny feels the sluggerpede bump against her knee. Jenny looks at it. She knows that Yiza is in there, but... Outwardly, there's no sign of him, just the smooth, glowing, pillowy mass on top. Hesitantly, she slings one leg over it and sits down, trying to ride it like a horse. As she does so, two tentacles of slug-like tissue arch out of the device and encase the tops of her thighs. Then, the Georg and the Slugapede run out of the police station at top speed. Shit! yells Jenny. Meanwhile, like, as all this is happening, up near the hospital, Hugh spots Danica sitting in the park and comes over to be menacing at her. I'm not even going to write this dialogue. 
you can picture it in your head, he's stupid and threatening and looms over her. And for a moment, she's scared. And then, out of the corner of her eye, she sees what's basically just streaks of green and purple traveling up the hill at high speed and smiles. Hugh turns to look and then runs back towards the hospital, yelling in panic. The police stream out of the hospital, plus a bunch of Hugh's protester buddies with guns. There's probably about 60 people in total versus maybe 20 Gaelk. As Hugh runs away, Danica moves too, and she moves up and crouches behind her car. As the Gaelk get closer, the Slugapede veers off and comes over to Danica with Jenny still on its back. Through the windows of Danica's car, they watch as Kobul and Tafali lead the pack of aliens towards the main entrance of the hospital. The humans open fire, but the Gaelic armor protects them, bullets pinging off them left and right. The humans are in formation. All the cops are in a line halfway across the car park in riot gear. Behind them, grouped around the entrance, are Hugh and his buddies with rifles. In between the two lines is the front row of car park spaces, where those few cars and van and stuff are still parked. The Gaelic at the front of the pack, including Kobol, charge the humans' front line and bring them down. Then Tafali darts through, now in the lead, and, and Jenny and Danica watch as she closes in on the main entrance. But when she has about a quarter of the car park left to go, suddenly the back of the white trade van that's parked out the front is thrown open. Inside is Oscar. He's holding a fireman's hose linked to a vat of strange blue liquid. He turns on the hose and points it straight at Tafali. From behind her, Kobul, Jenny and Danica watch in horror as, as soon as the liquid makes contact with her armour, her armour begins to dissolve. Your armour is decrystallizing, yells Kobul. Tafali's head whips round in panic and then she makes an abrupt right turn, running away from the hospital towards the cliff. Get back, she yells. Get the humans back. Immediately, the rest of the Gaelk turn and run. Jenny and Danica see Kobol bite down on the shirt collar of the cop he just tackled and start dragging him across the car park away from the hospital, running as fast as he can. The other Gaelk do the same. Meanwhile, Tafali is running in the direction of the cliff, but the humans around the main entrance are still firing, and with her armour dissolving, she's basically a sitting duck. A bullet hits her in the side, and she goes down, still in the car park, only 20 metres from the main entrance. Forget the humans, go back and get Tafali, yells Jenny, but none of the Gaelk even turn, they just keep racing away from the hospital. The armour on Tafali's back continues to dissolve. The spinning plates are long gone, only the ridge on the spine is left. And as that falls away in chunks, we see a glimmer beneath it and realise in a rush what Yeezer meant by an upgrade. The upgrade that allowed him to move so quickly when Jenny and Danica saw him in the morgue, the upgrade was what ran out while he was in the drunk tank, and the upgrade was also the reason that the Gaelk have been able to move at such superhuman speeds today. The upgrade was Zykoft. The pronounced ridge along the spine of this armour, the underside is lined with crushed Zykoft. And as the armour dissolves, the Zykoft is exposed to direct sunlight. 
the cliff is immediately rocked by a massive explosion. So this next bit is going to be total chaos. Tafali is, unfortunately, definitely dead. Likewise, Oscar and his armor-dissolving liquid are blown to kingdom come. The protesters at the main entrance, if not dead, are all incredibly badly burned, and the front part of the hospital is on fire. Jenny and Danica get on the phone, immediately call the ambulance and the fire department, and once the remaining Georg have dragged their humans to safety, they turn and start running back towards the hospital. Jenny tries to stop them. The, the fire department's on its way, but Koble says the fire will spread quickly. And while the Georg can handle the intense heat, humans cannot. The Georg move back towards the main entrance and start dragging the bodies of protesters out of the flames and into the park. Before he leaves, Jenny gives Koble the communicator from the IKEA lamp box. Uh, use this, she says. Ethel and Killian are probably near their communicators, and, and they know the hospital layout. They can help you to find people trapped inside. Koble sticks the communicator on the back of his neck and runs off. Then Jenny turns to Danica. we got to go get William. What? N- no, we need to stay here and, and look after the survivors. Emergency services are on their way. The, the Gale are basically superhuman. You and I can't run into fire or treat burns, but... The morgue, it's up the back, right? If we go in via the side entrance, we might have time before the fire spreads that far. Danica looks uncertain. Danica, says Jenny, do you really want to go through all this and not save William? After a moment, Danica shakes her head. Okay, let's go. They both jump on the back of the slugopede right off faster than any human could run to the side entrance. Danica lets them in with her key, then it's back on the slugopede. They race to the morgue. Once inside, they dive for William's morgue drawer, and they're just about to unlock it when Shirley steps out from behind the door, holding a gun. Cue the classic villain standoff, with extremely dramatic dialogue that will still somehow be less campy than what I'm just about to say. But this does the job, so we'll do it. (laughs) Shirley says, I so hoped it would be you too. I worried you'd let the aliens do your dirty work. Shirley, didn't you hear the explosion? The building is on fire. I always knew these aliens would resort to violence, and yet you still support them. You are traitors to the human race. Jenny says, Shirley, your husband is seriously injured, maybe dead, and the building is on fire. You have to get out. If you think that I'm going to believe anything that comes out of your lying mouth, You are sadly mistaken. I am going to make sure that you never deceive anyone ever again. Shirley points the gun at Jenny, begins to squeeze the trigger, and then, at the last second, seems to lose her balance and fall over backwards. Jenny and Danica look down and see Yiza, fully recovered, curled around her ankles. Shirley falls backwards, lands squarely on the slugopede, which immediately absorbs and traps her entire body, except for her head, which, since she's taller than five feet, sticks out the top. What the hell is this? Is this alien eating me? Jenny opens the morgue drawer. Danica grabs the styrofoam box inside. Before they close the drawer, Jenny touches William's cold shoulder. We got you, buddy, she says. Then Jenny and Danica jump back on the slugopede, their backs 
facing towards Shirley's still screaming head, and they and Yiza sprint for the exit. Once they're outside, they tear off down some side streets and then come back around until they can look back up Kerrang Street towards the hospital again. They see that the fire department and the ambulance have already arrived. It looks like the fire is beginning to be brought under control. They also see a mob of reporters. And over the next few days, the newspapers will be full of heartwarming images of Georg emerging from the flames with groups of sick kids sitting on their backs or with wheelchair-bound people being towed behind them, hanging onto their tails. Jenny looks at the styrofoam box in her hands and turns to Yisa. We should get this back to the cave as soon as possible. Put it on the ground, says Yisa. Once there, he kind of knocks the top of the box off with his nose and grabs William's brain with his tongue and pulls it into his mouth. Danica grimaces. Is that safe? You're not going to hurt it. I've stored it in my cheek pouch. This is the standard method for transporting soul. Danica nods. From inside the slugger page, Shirley yells, I knew it! I knew it! The aliens are eating the brains! Is anyone seeing this? Jenny rolls her eyes and then glances at the growing crowds of wounded people in the park. Can this thing, the sluggipede thing, take Shirley back up to them and then let her out? She should probably check on her husband. Certainly, says Yuta, and the sluggipede heads off up the hill. After a pause, Danica speaks. I'm so sorry about Tafali, she says. Yes, says Yuta. As am I. Koble will salvage her body and carry her back to the cave. Perhaps some parts of her Georg soul may still be able to be crystallised. I hope so, says Jenny. Isa looks at Jenny and then at Danica. Thank you, he says. Then he lifts up onto his hind legs and sways slowly from side to side for a moment, making that trilling noise in the back of his throat. Jenny and Danica still don't really know what this kind of strange ceremony means, but they find themselves instinctively following his movements a little, side to side. They don't really know why. Then Yiza drops back to the ground. Goodbye, he says, then turns and runs downhill towards the cave. Jenny sighs. I should probably go back to the police station, I guess. Maybe Officer Driscoll will let me back into the drunk tank if I ask nicely. Or you could just let them arrest you again, says Danica. I mean, how much more trouble are you going to be in at this point? You're probably right. I wouldn't mind a sleep in an actual bed. You can come to mine, says Danica. She takes Jenny's hand and they start walking down the hill, back towards the centre of town. Okay, then we have an epilogue. 12 months later. The Georg spaceship left Melinda Bay as soon as the navigation system was complete, about a week after the events at the hospital, which the papers ended up calling the alien invasion. Leaving at this point should have given them plenty of time to slingshot around the correct orbits and make it home. Although the Georg received the three brains they required, given the circumstances of Tefali's death and the part that Oscar and NBZ Corp played in it, 
the Georg declined to provide humans with the technology they needed to continue manufacturing Zykoft. There was some ill feeling about this amongst the townspeople, but public opinion about the Georg shifted significantly in the days and weeks after the invasion. Pictures appeared in the paper of their hospital rescues, there were eyewitness accounts on TV, and the sheer numbers of people saved meant that most people in town either had been pulled out of the flames on the back of a giant lizard, or knew someone who had, or knew someone who knew someone. You get the idea, it's a small town. But there's no doubt, though, that MBZ Corp's business definitely took a hit. They struggled to pivot, leaning heavily into the meat-producing and shipping arms of their business, but there were mass layoffs, and the prosperity of the town suffered as a result. But in the vacuum left by the reduction of the town's biggest employer, a number of small businesses sprang up. We're going to come back to one of those in a moment. Jenny was acquitted of William's murder, and in a landmark, if academic, since it wasn't reached till two months after the Gale had left, decision, the donation to aliens of the brains of those dead by suicide was found to be lawful. However, Jenny was found guilty of breaking and entering, and of breaking out of police custody, and was therefore sentenced to a couple of years in prison. Danica resigned from her job in local government about three months after the invasion. Greg begged her to stay, as he was gearing up for a tough re-election battle, but Danica felt like she needed to try something new. She started one of the aforementioned new small businesses, operating out of a storefront on a quiet street, out of sight of the port, down the road from the funeral home. The company she started is called Preservation Incorporated, and her services are based around the only technology the Georg did leave in Melinda Bay. Last scene of the book, we see Danica in her office, greeting some customers. They're an older woman and her daughter. I'm not sure about this, says the older woman. Beryl's a tradition in my family. I don't know if I want to rock the boat. But my daughter says I should hear you out. I mean, I'll do whatever you want, Mum, but we should know our options, right? Says the daughter. Yes, I want to know my options, says the mother. They both look to Danica, who takes a deep breath. There are lots of options after death, she says in a matter-of-fact voice. Burial is traditional, but expensive. Danica sees the daughter nod very slightly, and inwardly she smiles, glad that she read the situation right. Cremation is cheaper, she continues, and there are other options too. But preservation is by far the lowest cost option after death. The older woman sniffs. Doesn't seem right, taking the cheap option. I assure you says Danica, preservation is not cheap because we mistreat or disrespect the remains of our clients in any way. It's merely because we recognise, where our competitors do not, that your life, your body, is valuable and useful. And we use that value to offset some of the cost of caring for it after you're gone. If you opt for preservation, after your death, the cells of your body will be preserved in long strings using our Georg crystallization technology, and it will be turned into what we call soul. The cells will not degrade, 
and they will retain the abilities that they had in life. Muscle soul, for example, retains its ability to contract, uh, liver soul to filter, and so on. We will then combine these different types of soul in a variety of innovative ways to form new technologies and processes that benefit humankind. What kind of technologies, says the daughter? Well, we we have a number of patents, uh, and we apply for new ones all the time. Donors are given veto powers over the kinds of technology in which their soul is used, and after death, those veto powers are passed on to their descendants. But as an example, I, I can show you a prototype of one of our recent developments, if you like. Mother and daughter look at each other and nod. Denica pulls a box from a desk drawer and places a much smoother and more streamlined, but still disquietingly organic, version of the Georg communicator on the desk in front of them. This device is made of brain salt, preserved brain cells, she says. Both mother and daughter draw back slightly in their chairs. Denica doesn't say anything for a moment and takes care not to let her face change. Then she says, brain soul, like muscle soul and liver soul, retains the abilities it had in life. Consciousness is not retained, personality is gone. But memories and the learning abilities of the donor, those remain. We hope that in the future, devices like this will allow for human-to-human telepathic communication, potentially even over long distances. But for now, it serves another function. If you would please each place a finger on the device. After a moment, hesitantly, the daughter reaches forward a hand and her mother follows suit. Together, they each put their forefinger on the communicator. And then their eyes close. Danica doesn't join them, but she knows what they will see. The room will go dark. And then they will see the world through the eyes of a ten-year-old boy. Although they probably won't recognise it, Danica knows the memory is Killian's. You'll remember Killian was the know-it-all, biology-obsessed member of the potential donor group. His memory is from a camping trip he took with his parents in 1947. He went swimming in a river. His brother caught a fish. He saw a southeast Australian red-tailed black cockatoo for the first time. After a minute, Danica sees that the mother is crying. Then they both open their eyes and look at her. Danica reaches forward and places a hand over the older woman's. Your memories are valuable. The life you've lived and the body you've lived it in is valuable. We cannot stop you dying. But, if you like, we can make sure that your death is not a waste. And that's it. For now, that's the end of the book. I hope you liked it. Anyway, that's what I've been thinking about for the last two weeks. I'll be back in a fortnight. In the meantime, I always love to hear from listeners about how they think the process is going, the place to leave questions or comments or just to keep up to date with a novel process is on the Victorian Theatre Company socials or at the website, victoriantheatre.org. Have a good one.